This week on the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast. I mean, to say that we're living in, in odd times is, uh, I, I think, a little bit cliche at this point and, and just sort of the reality. The now normal, um, <laughs> which will change to the next now normal, it really means that I think a lot of people's individual capacity is overloaded. And I, I think, you know, we've got a global public health crisis. We're starting a little bit of economic recovery, which is diminishing that that particular crisis. There is obviously a climate crisis that needs to be addressed. And there's a mental health crisis that needs to be addressed. Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I will be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment? And what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Welcome to the Crisis Conflict Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global perspectives and conversations about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies in a challenging and ever-changing world. In today's show, we're going to explore the topic of climate security, conflict, and adaptation to build more resilient communities. And to join us in that conversation is Josh Bowen. Josh has more than 18 years of crisis leadership and emergency management experience and training in disaster, military, and academic settings. He is currently faculty and the Disaster and Emergency Management Program at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, NAIT, and teaches select crisis leadership courses for NAIT's Center for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management. Josh is also serving as a subject matter expert supporting Public Safety Canada's National Risk Profile Initiative and Environment and Climate Change Canada's National Adaptation Strategy. Before joining NAIT, Josh served 13 years in the Canadian Armed Forces as an infantry officer and was directly involved in five disaster response operations, and he holds a Master's of Disaster and Emergency Management from York University and is a graduate of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard University. Josh, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, glad to be here, Kyle. Thanks for the invitation. So before we get started, let me just take one minute to sort of set up our discussion and add some context. So I'd like to first frame this talk with some perspectives of international organizations, and then we can sort of draw down from there and eventually get to the discussion of what actionable steps and you know, nations are in, and communities can take to tackle these complex issues, and maybe with some examples from your own work and experience. Uh, so first, let me just sort of add in some perspective from the International Crisis Group. So the International Crisis Group states that the relationship between climate security and deadly conflict is complex and context-specific. Climate change affects every aspect of life, damaging food systems, displacing millions, and shaping the future of conflict. It is undeniable that climate change is a threat multiplier that is already increasing food security, insecurity, I should say, water scarcity and resource competition while disrupting livelihoods and spurring migration. In turn, deadly conflict and political instability are contributing to climate change. And then we can turn to ICRC, so the International Red Cross, who states that today's climate and environmental crises affect every aspect of our lives, from physical to mental health to our food, water, and livelihoods. While these crises affect everyone, those hit hardest are the poorest and most marginalized communities. People living through the conflict frequently tell us about the massive environmental changes they are witnessing. Their daily lives are not only more, made more difficult by violence they experience, but also by changing climate and environment. They are often ill-prepared for repeated climate hazards. In 2020, the ICRC released When Rain Turns to Dust. The report illustrates how countries mired in conflict are disproportionately impacted by climate variability and extremes due to the limited adaptive capacity of people, systems, and institutions already coping with the consequences of conflict. And finally, with NATO, climate change is one of the defining challenges of our times. It is a threat multiplier. So again, we, we hear that term that impacts allied security. Greater temperature extremes, sea level rise, rapid changes in, pre in precipitation patterns, and an increasing frequency and intensity of extreme weather conditions and events test the resilience of our military installations and critical infrastructure, impair the effectiveness of our capabilities, and may create harsher conditions for our military operations and missions. The implications of climate change include drought, soil erosion, and maritime environmental degradation. These can lead to famine floods, 
loss of land and livelihood and have a disproportionate impact on women and girls, as well as the poor, vulnerable and marginalized populations, as well as potentially exacerbate state fragility, fuel conflicts and lead to displacement, migration and human mobility, creating conditions that can be exploited by state and non-state actors that threaten or challenge the alliance. So I know that was kind of a lot, but, you know, as we hear these different positions, Josh, and we know these topics are, are not new. If I recall correctly, climate security has been a topic since I, I think roughly 2009, when, or you know, when we started to see these sort of terminology come out in various assessments. When you hear these statements, what are some of the thoughts that come to your mind? Wow, where to where to begin? Um, <laughs> you know, in in so many ways, I think the the fact that we have a change in climate is is indisputable. I'm not going to get into the, the politics behind that, but the reality is that everybody everywhere is impacted by it, whether it's directly or indirectly. And in so many ways, I mean, if, if I just look at, at Canada right now, uh, the Canadian temperature, uh, average temperature is changing three times faster uh, than the rest of the world uh, because of, of our latitude. Uh, in the Arctic, it's changing six times faster than the rest of the world. Uh, and so that's putting massive numbers of, of communities, uh, of you know, the ice shelves, uh, all of those things at risk. And, you know, in 2017, I think we saw the, the first cruise ship run aground in the Arctic. Uh, and so as the Northwest Passage opens up, great for transportation, great economic opportunity. There's a security issue there, uh, not only in terms of sovereignty of waters, but also in terms of what happens when a cruise ship runs aground in the Arctic. How do you respond to that? If a tanker runs aground in the Arctic, if it hits ice, whatever happens, how do you respond to that? How do you contain that environmental hazard uh, in an environment that we, we really don't have the maps for? We don't have the bathymetric maps. We don't understand what's going on underground. And with changing sea ice, it's changing all the time. And if we look at what's just happened on the west coast of, of Canada in November, there was a, an atmospheric river, lots and lots of water, uh, essentially, uh, lots of rain. And that flooded out one of the main transportation corridors. An entire agricultural region was flooded out. And the government has just said, we're going to contribute 250 roughly million dollars uh, to support uninsured farmers to be able to maintain the food supplies. So precipitation because of climate change causes an evacuation, also cuts off main uh, transportation corridor. So now not only do we have displaced people, we have disrupted infrastructure, we have Canada's largest port uh, with a massive amount of, of our GDP flows through the port of Vancouver. It's now disrupted. We've got backups in terms of being able to onload and offload ships, which actually disrupts the entire global supply chain. Uh, and we've got food insecurity. And it's from one event. What happens when there's three, four, five, six events? And so really, you know, not to be uh, Dr. Doom or anything like that, but we really can't emphasize the impacts and the interconnectivity of these events we can't emphasize it enough. Yeah, that was actually a, some terminology I saw when I was reading through some of these documents, which was really interesting in terms of you know societies, especially from the ICRC perspective, is that societies are often ill-prepared for repeated climate hazards and events. And so it's, it's this compound effect, which I think we're not really sort of um, getting ready for. Some of the work that we're doing um, at Capacity Building National and supporting the International Emergency Management Society is on some EU projects, and it's it's really extreme wildfire events now. So now it's not just the version of just wildfire; it's it's the amplification of it. It's the the again the threat multiplier language that we see. It's not just the wildfire; it's extreme wildfire events, you know. And so then it's really becoming an issue of either complexity, so the layering of events, or it's on just geographic size and scope and proportion you know, to all these sort of different issues. And and I don't know exactly, and I'd, I'd like to hear your thought on this, but, um, you know, we're obviously seeing, you know, when you sit around the table and you have these discussions about 
just like what you're talking about, this singular event has many, many sort of magnitudes of, of order and effects that are taking place. You know, do you get a, a sort of a feeling that we're really prepared to deal with all these secondary and third and additional effects that go down the lines? I mean, are we prepared to have that discussion? Because because it seems like, and I'm just sort of speculating right now, but it's it seems like we, we see the effects, we see these knock-on effects, and then at the end of the day, it's, well, this is going to be $200 billion, or this is going to be some massive investment. I mean, are we cognizant of the the impacts that are coming? You know, I think in in the inner circles of, of emergency managers, we're aware uh, and, you know, we're, we're set. We know that this is going to happen. In terms of broader society, I don't know. Um, you know, if, if we think back, uh, way back, uh, 10 years ago in, in, you know, April 2020, um, <laughs> it certainly feels like 10 years, the question was, okay, we've got a pandemic, we're dealing with it. Uh, and then somebody put their hand up and said, what happens when we have a flood or a fire? And so my team uh, at Nate pulled together a bunch of emergency social services people to talk about that. Now you know that we're going into flood and fire season. How do we run an evacuation center and a reception center with COVID? Because back in April, we didn't know what we know now. Uh, and I would argue now we don't know enough to, to be able to make these decisions effectively. But we didn't know enough to be able to say this is how you safely run a reception center for a community that's just been evacuated. How do you keep the population that's just been evacuated safe? How do you keep the population that's receiving that community safe? And so we don't need to look at, at these mega fires and we don't need to look at massive floods. We can look at small instances small events that have one extra factor layered on. And now what does that mean? And so the second and third order effects of, of that are huge, right? Back to the example of that flood, national supply lines disrupted, international supply lines impacted, food supply massively disrupted, lots of people displaced. And that's in one very small part of the world. What happens if, if something like that happens in Central Europe and we've got massive population density? How are we going to, how are we going to be able to support those kinds of things um, and those kinds of knock-on impacts? Do you, so do you get the feeling that when you're having these discussions that um, there's that, uh, again, that layer of complexity? How many, in your experience, like how many layers can we go through before we just sort of like, okay, this is the maximum amount. Like, okay, there's, there's this one, there's the, the incident, there's this event that's occurred, the ship has run aground, it's this, okay, well, now we have a supply issue, chain issue, now we've got an environmental issue, anything beyond that, it's like we're getting into sort of like maximum use of resources and preparedness. Well, I think uh, this is where having, you know, processes to actually look at problems and, and to, to break them down into component parts and say, if we do this, what is the next step? Right. So if we look at the, the BP Deepwater Horizon disaster, the U.S. Coast Guard is responsible for any kind of uh, environmental impact on, on the water. They were concerned about containing the oil that was coming out into the Gulf. At the same time, at the political level, there's a U.S. election coming up. Uh, it's our midterms are there. It's 2010. Um, there's, it's, a, it's a very different world than what it is right now. And the other major role for the U.S. Coast Guard is uh, border security, maritime border security and, and immigration. And so as the oil started to track south of, of Florida, there was a risk of it coming in between the U.S. and Cuba. And because of uh, a bunch of rules, the U.S. Coast Guard would have to have more cutters in between the U.S. and Cuba, which means they would be interdicting more people leaving Cuba to come to the U.S., and the only place to take them back to return them to Cuba at the time was Guantanamo Bay. Now, you try telling the American people in 2010 that, don't worry, we're taking them to the nice side of Guantanamo Bay. Um, it, it just it didn't exist. There was no formal relations. And then from an economic and from a political perspective, BP was accountable. 
and that's they had to to bear the the uh, financial burden for for actually doing the cleanup, and yet they couldn't be made to be the bad guy because something like seventy five percent of British pensions were invested in BP, and so if BP goes bankrupt, you bankrupt an entire nation in terms of their pensioners, and so how do we look at those complex issues and say right? Who are the stakeholders? How do we map that out? How do we reach out and say, if we do this, then what? What's the next impact? And what's the one beyond that? And I think if we can reasonably get to a point where we're saying, who are all the stakeholders that are involved? What are the potential impacts to them of the decisions? And what's the next thing that happens? If we can get to that, we'll be far better off in terms of actually understanding and dealing with the complexity that we're seeing. And how much do you think that has changed over the last 10 years, right? So, you know, as the complexities have increased, obviously that mapping has dramatically increased as well. And it's it's sort of come to a point where we're beginning to tax the system quite dramatically. How much have you seen this change over the last decade? I think there's a a few things that change. And I mean, I can speak to the Canadian experience. Um, From about uh, 2000 to 2010, roughly, the military was called on to support natural disasters in Canada a handful of times. From 2010 to 2020, 21, uh, it was called almost 30 times to be able to respond. It was a massive increase. And that's because we don't necessarily have the civilian capability um, to deploy like a military does. I mean, a military is designed to go somewhere with no supports, sustain itself, communicate, and move, right? And, And that's really what it's designed to do um, to achieve other national strategic effects. So in a, in a domestic disaster, the military's got a great capability. What we've started to see here in Canada is uh, the provinces building out their own capabilities. And a lot of that is coming uh, saying, we're gonna provide funding to different regions, um, municipalities, or they're gonna find, we're gonna get volunteers to come in, they're gonna train, they're gonna build an incident management team that can then go and support neighboring communities which is fantastic. Where we need to get is providing and and enabling with those other capabilities from deployment, mobility, communication, so that we can actually have those teams deploy. Because when they leave, they're leaving a full-time job. And so if we build our disaster response capability on first responders, fire police, EMS, municipal uh, employees, then we're actually taking from this community over here to support that community over there, which works for a certain amount of time. But the home community needs those people back. And so how do we actually, we're starting to have conversations here about how do we build civilian capacity to be able to support? So something like what Australia does with the SES or what uh, Germany does with THW. And there are a lot of other examples around the world. but how do we build a civilian capacity so that people can leverage the skills that they have from their day jobs uh, and from their, their lived experience to be able to support time of disaster so that we're not drawing away from professionals that also have a job. And was that developed more recently in Canada because just the increasing complexity of incidents and the resource requirements? I, I think both. You know, we're, we're seeing far more events uh, happening. And, you know, a lot of the discussion is saying that one in 100 year flood, that's now a one in 10 flood. Scrap the rest of your models and adjust everything accordingly. And so how do we actually have the capability to to respond to these events? The other side of it, obviously, being the mitigation and adaptation uh, side. So how do we reduce the impacts that are going to happen? And then how do we adapt our infrastructure so that it can actually be more sustainable? Maybe we need to say that that beautiful home you want to build uh, on that low land right by the river with the beautiful view, maybe we're not going to allow that because we know it's going to flood. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, mm-hmm. but it's going to flood. Yeah, that requires a, quite a cultural change, right? And a lot of community engagement, and and um, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure sort of on the communities as well to allow for investment and development in these beautiful low-lying flood areas, right? So what is one of some of the keys or what are some of the um, issues that you've seen come up in sort of these community areas or advocating for, you know, a change in, say, culture, preparedness, culture or policy with regards to these topics? 
Yeah, it, you know, it, I mean, to say that we're living in in odd times is, uh, I, I think, a little bit cliche at this point, and, and just sort of the reality, the now normal, um, <laughs> which will change to the next now normal. It really means that I think a lot of people's individual capacity is overloaded, and I, I think you know we've got a global public health crisis. We're starting a little bit of economic recovery, which is diminishing that that particular crisis. Um, there is obviously a climate crisis that needs to be addressed, and there's a mental health crisis that needs to be addressed. Uh, and and really, I mean, I think a few years ago, people used to say, "Yeah, I worked so hard, I got burnt out. Wasn't that awesome?" Uh, and people are like, "Yeah, good job. That's not sustainable. That's not a that's not a badge of honor to be worn." So, how do we build the capacities for individual and community resilience um, while also dealing with all of these other things. And so it, it, it really becomes a wicked problem, right? And so that's where understanding, how do, how do we take that chaotic problem and just just reduce it to, to complex so that we can start to reduce it to complicated, mm. right? And then eventually coordinated and then we can carry on. I think that's really the stream from my perspective of, of emergency management. Take chaos, make it coordinated, and carry on. Yeah, I like the way you phrase that, right? And because one of the challenges I've seen, at least working internationally, is like, um, you know, there's, there's a great degree and variance between individuals, say, community resilience and adaptability, that, that, you know, the ability to adapt to different changing environments at different, you know, s- certain situations, you know, changing climate issues. And it's it's all very very complex in terms of trying to manage it working with host nations working with other governments to try and deal with these kind of issues or dealing with the the effects of these issues and and anywhere from terms of legislating you know to the policy development to interagency cooperation and it's all simply coming down to sort of this intangible like you said sort of let, let's capture what's happening here let's try to actively and or proactively manage the situation get a really transparent as much as we can a glimpse into this environment of what we're dealing with and then just manage sort of one or two problems at a time right and then and then to scope it down to something like you said eventually to where we sort of can coordinate it but the what i have found is that really sort of everybody's approach is is quite different obviously very sometimes dramatically different in terms of their approach to climate security climate change and the impacts and and what it means for the communities. But one really common theme has been that everything is sort of really getting pushed down the community level. At the end of the day, everything really is at, you know, all disasters are local at the end of the day. And I, I have, even though I've been working sort of in, in and out of that responder and emergency management career my whole life, especially in the international crisis space, um, that's always struck me as being very interesting because regardless of where you go, everything is at the local level. And that one common thread has been, incredibly interesting and because it's the most effective population in terms of all aspects so whether we're talking about conflict you know resource wars whatever the case is the the substantial impact is at that community level and with that local population and so empowering the local community to be able to to have better governance to make better decisions to be able to have the resources and capabilities to deal with these complex effects of disaster has been a key sort of theme that's been coming out of many international projects what are some sort of takeaways or some examples, especially in your experience as maybe launching this this new uh, response initiative or, or building out these capabilities in Canada? What are some things or lessons that you've seen in terms of community engagement and building community capacities? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we see uh, everywhere, uh, and I think this is sort of a universal, is something, something happens. Uh, somebody from somewhere else comes, uh, and whether that's, you know, the next town, the the next level of government internationally, whatever, and says, I'm from away, I'm here to help, do what I say. And so really, I mean, the other thing that we know from, you know, the military experience uh, and and uh, aid NGOs is, is your local uh, interpreters and cultural advisors and, and your support team that's local knows what's going on, knows what the needs are and knows how to get things done and knows what's going to get you into trouble. And yet when we have these these disasters, so often somebody comes in and says, I've got it. Don't worry. I'm here to, I'm here to fix the problem. So I think what we really need to do um, is start by listening. Uh, and, and it's not listening to be right. It's not listening 
to, to make your argument better. It's listening to understand what the needs are. And I think in so many different different places we we say, well, we're just going to give, you know, we're going to we're going to teach these people ICS and then they're fine, um, or incident command system and then they're fine, um, and that that's not it. I mean, there's a whole piece. So we need to really understand uh, and engage with communities to to identify what's the natural world look like here. How does that interact with the built world? How does the social world layer onto that? Like if I look at my community, we're just off a major highway. We've got the river on the other side uh, and there's two roads that are in and out. And the average age in part of the community, uh, the median age is 69. And the first thought is, oh my gosh, this community, median age is 69. Everybody's isolated. Uh, You need to get supports there right away if something happens. And then correlate with that with the bus routes no buses in our community because they're not needed. Add in the median income and you say, actually, there's there's 3.5 cars per person in that community. I'm being a little bit flippant, but you know, like there's there's massive mobility. We don't need to prioritize the resources. Yet when we look at those single indicators and we say the median population is 69, we got to send all of our resources there. Maybe you don't. Right? So we really need to understand the local context. And so that starts well ahead of the disaster happening right? and engaging and saying, tell us about your community. I want to know more. And then when you do that at the municipal level, you can start aggregating that up to a regional level, to a provincial or state level, and then up even further than that so that you can have that context. And then the other critical piece that, that's tied into that is sharing that information. Um, I mean, gone are the days where it's like, this is my information and I'm going to hold it tight. Uh, and then when, when something happens, I'm going to be a hero and share it. At that point, it's too late, right? We, we need to have those understandings um, so that you're not saying 69, great, send everything there. Because you're only looking at that one metric that you've got. We need to have a little bit more open data as well. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, that's true. I think that what I've sort of seen or have felt over the last few years is is sort of emergency management or crisis management has turned more into advocates and, you know, sort of getting ahead of these things rather than sort of being in this response mechanism, right? And so for many years, and just in my opinion, um, it's always been sort of really response-oriented, right? So it's sort of heavily in that response field. So it's always there's the disaster and then I'm going to respond and I'm going to be a key part in this response. And then somebody comes in and of course there's, you know, the, the recovery and then we move forward into, you know, mitigation and prevention and everything else that goes along with that. However, it seems like we have shifted somewhat and, and, and I, and I think in a good way. So it's, it's shifted over towards, you know, we really need to advocate for people to think ahead. And we need to advocate for cultural change. We need to advocate for policy change. And to, and, and while that's been happening for some time, I, I think it's gotten ultimately a lot more complex because now, exactly as you're saying, we, we're bringing in the, the different cultural aspects. We're bringing in all these different dynamics and really advocating for not only community change, but legislative change, policy change, budgets, everything else that goes along with that. And, you know, one thing that I found, at least working internationally, and it's, I think cultural change is, is really the, the difficult thing. Whether we talk about building a, a culture of preparedness, um, but I'm really talking about like community culture and these friction points and the obstacles that we, we face when we try and advocate for change. And if I use an example from my sort of experience, when you look at some other nations and you look at, say, building codes and standards and licenses and permits and all these things like that. And in many different countries, unfortunately, that's a, a great area for sort of, uh, let's just say, manipulation. And, and, you know, what's a nice way to say this? Um, and for some people to generate extra income. <laughs> right. And so what, what ends up happening is you have people that might go get a permit to build an apartment building on land that is maybe not the best location and and then they will get a permit for one building and they end up building three right but it's certain it's allowed because some local solid sort of politician was you know paid accordingly or gifted something so there's this entire like effort to change the culture 
in many different ways. And some, some communities are far better, some are far worse, but there's a large role of advocacy that takes place here, but there's many different friction points. So if we could talk about these friction points for a second, maybe how we can overcome some of these things. So you've mentioned all these different areas in terms of, you know, getting out there, understanding communities, having to get ahead of it in, in terms of timelines, having to then again, sell that upwards and sharing that information. What are some of the other friction points that emergency managers have when they're trying to deal with these issues that we need to sort of overcome as well? I think, you know, in many ways, the, the biggest one and the most obvious uh, is that in most communities around the world, emergency management, if, if there is an emergency manager there, uh, it is a secondary or tertiary duty, right? And it's like, yeah, I know that you're fire chief and you're the chief administrative officer for the town. You've also got this emergency management thing too, but don't worry, nothing's ever going to happen. Uh, and so, you know, in many ways, we need to continue down the road of, of advocating for the professionalization. And if we if we sh- are able to carry on with that culture shift that you're talking about, and I think it's really, really prevalent, from emergency management is emergency response. Um, and we can shift that to taking it to let's build a culture of, of preparedness and then take that one step further. Uh, and one of, uh, one of my friends and colleagues, Megan Enright, uh, had a great post the other day with her organization. And she was talking about, we've shifted from a culture of preparedness to a culture of readiness. And so preparedness is, is you know, I've got my 72-hour kid. I've got 96 hours worth of food and water. I'm, I'm ready if, if I need to go. Or I'm prepared if something happens. Readiness is, right, how do I then use that i've actually made sure that everything is is ready to go i'm actually i know where my neighbors are i know what capabilities they have we've talked about it we've had those conversations and so when something does happen we're actually ready to support each other uh, and not just survive and so if we're able to take that shift from emergency management is emergency response shift that to let's build a culture of preparedness across all of our organizations and institutions and across society, and then actually shift that, that one step further to we are now ready. How do we push this forward? Then I think in many ways, we'll actually be set up to be more resilient. In these communities that don't have emergency managers, you know, how do we bridge that gap, right? And so when you don't have somebody that's that advocate in the community, how do we get around that? I've, you know, in some nations I've been to, the, of course, this, this position of emergency management doesn't exist. Uh, if it does exist, it's maybe highly centralized at a capital city government level uh, within and sort of embedded inside of a ministry of internal affairs and, and possibly even just sort of sidelined as a department or directorate or agency or whatever, because, you know, it's a necessary evil, but not necessarily empowered or funded to be able to do something. And so not everything is negative in terms of emergency management. I mean, there's some very good programs out there. Uh, but what I have seen for the most cases is, is sort of like what you're saying. It's not in every community. It's not. It's certainly not an investment. I think many community leaders feel like it's sort of like an insurance program, like something you have to pay for, but you don't get a great return on unless something happens, of course. So how do we get through this where the people in the community that need that are you know sort of the recipients of this sort of you know information basically knowledge how do we develop programs that are going to to sort of you know encourage them to be ready to be prepared and ready and then to be able to sort of advance their communities as well is that going to really be on every single community leader so we're just targeting mayors and municipalities and, and things like that or are we really advocating for funded emergency management positions? What is your experience so far? I mean, in an ideal world, we'd have funded emergency managers in every organization and in every community around the world, and that would just be awesome. I mean, I, I, I'm advocating for job security. The reality, though, I think it really comes back to starting and listening uh, and, and to engaging with community leaders. right? And, and I think anybody who's operated internationally knows that there is uh, – and even in our local communities, we can think about it. There are the elected officials, there are the, there are the appointed officials, and there are the community leaders. 
right? And so who are those community leaders, those people that can actually rally the entire community together? And so being able to, to find out who those people are, to be able to engage with them and to listen and say, what is it about your community that makes it unique? What makes it special? What are the hazards that are here? And then we can start to build out and understand the, the natural world interacting with the built world, interacting with the social world and how that goes up and down. And then say, right, maybe this is where we actually need to, to focus a little bit of, of time. Have you thought about how might we make this more resilient? And starting with open-ended questions and then really actually listening to understand. Um, so if we go in and say, every community needs an emergency manager. If that's the assumption that we're starting with, we're never going to listen to what's being said. So let's actually engage with the communities, listen to them, find out what those needs are, and then be able to work from there. And if you have a community that's resistant, that's fine. There's going to be another one that's you know a few doors down, and we'll be able to, to communicate with those uh, and engage in a meaningful, substantive way, and then say, right, we want to be able to help out your neighbors. How might you be able to facilitate that? Because at the end of the day, emergency management is all about people. And it's how do we engage people to help people? Um, and there's all of the, the natural world impacts and the infrastructure impacts and, and all of those kinds of things in the business and economic disruption and everything there. But without people, it doesn't, none of it actually matters. So we need to start on that people level uh, and find out what are the drivers for a community? What are the things that actually make the community the community that it is? And that's going to change, you know, depending on how dense your population is. It, may, it might change every 50 meters. Um, it might change, you know, every 10 kilometers. We don't, we don't know. Um, but you're not going to know until you actually talk to people and, and seek to understand. So whether that's going to be at the local government level or the, the regional, the state level or, or the federal level, you need to start those discussions and start asking open-ended questions and saying, hey, at the, at the state level, hey, we've got some funding for you to do a little bit more engagement. These are the kinds of things we would like to know, but we want you to do more engagement. And then let that carry on. And then, again, passing that information up up and down. You know, when I, I listen to you say that, it makes me think about that, um, again, since in my view, at least anyway, that there's been sort of a fundamental shift in emergency management over the years. But it seems to be now that we're focused more on people than processes, right? And so it is really becoming that issue. I mean, it used to be sort of, you know, very, again, response oriented with that, you know, resources, capabilities and all these things. And that still exists, right? But it still becomes, you know, as incidents, as climate security, as climate change, and we sort of get these exacerbating, you know, amplification of events and sort of these, these uh, you know, first, second, third order effects with all the disasters now, it's become an issue of, you know, resources only go so far, right? You only have a finite amount of resources. And then we have to be able to really engage with people to be the advocate and move forward things. And one of the things that came out, which I, I like this sort of quote coming from ICRC, which was the fact that, you know, limited adaptive capacity of people, systems, and institutions. And, and that's where I think we see this compounding effect that's occurring, and especially in the world I live in where it's sort of international crisis and conflict, and then we start adding in emergency management things. There's already an engagement and attention towards managing a, a conflict. <laughs> and then you have a sort of climate-induced disaster or catastrophe, which then, you know, seriously compounds everything. Uh, and this is where, when we look at systems and adaptability of communities, and adaptability of people and institutions. And, and this is why I also like the, the community resilience models and things that are out there, where, whether we're talking about FEMA lifelines and everything else like that. And again, I really like that push down to the community level because it's something more tangible and directly that you can impact versus these, these larger sort of systems and structures, which then get sort of lost in massive sort of detail and plans and programs overall. And what I've seen in my experience is that if something has happened that is completely disrupting in the government, in my case, or my scenario might be conflict of some sorts, 
that is entirely distracting. And those overarching bureaucratic systems and processes are not going to necessarily be in place and that the communities will have to be sustainable themselves because, you know, waiting for the central government to do something that's otherwise, you know, 90 percent engaged, just trying to maintain state security, you know, is, is you're, you're sort of on your own in, the, in that regard. And so what does it make you think, you know, when you hear things about the, you know, the statement of adaptive capacity of people, systems and institutions? Yeah, I, I love this concept. Uh, I, I think it's so important to actually deconstruct it and and to get to the root of it, right? And so we talk, I mean, adaptation is change over time, right? And change in response to a stimulus. Great. At the, at the most basic level. Resilience at the most basic level is the ability to bounce back, right? So they're linked because there's, there's an assumption that there is a stimulus that requires change uh, and, and that there is a disruption. The question I would ask, though, is, you know, if COVID times aside, when was the last time you had a block party? How many of your neighbors do you know? Do you know just the people that are on your street, just your part of the street? Um, do you know the people around the corner? What do they do? What are their interests? How do, how do we start building that capacity? So at the most basic level, I mean, you know, if you, if you look at North American society, 50 years ago, everybody was involved in their church. Uh, everybody was involved in their school. And everybody was involved in an extracurricular, and whether that was you know a service club or or scouts or whatever it happened to be, but you had things that reinforced community, and it was on a very local level. So how do we start building that resilience back through social connection? So what can we do? There's a lot of different programs that are and projects and processes that are out there. Um, we've got one in in my city right now and it, it's basically somebody from each sort of block says i'll volunteer to be a block block captain or or you know block advocate whatever it happens to be and then they sort of coordinate with the next one over and the whole point is hey we're going to host an event on our on our street uh, and it you know it'll be a barbecue or whatever it happens to be and then somebody from the next street over that leader, whatever it happens to be, comes over and says, hey, we're one street over, we're two streets over, you know, we're five streets away. How can we get involved? Do you want to come to our thing? Do we want to do a bigger thing as, as a community? And so the idea is, you know, you're going to have 10x growth and it's going to scale and, and all of those good things. Um, but it starts with that local connection. Right? And so if the, the local government is able to support that, kind of initiative it doesn't really cost any money because everybody that's doing it is a volunteer right and it's not hard to say like hey i got a barbecue we can do that i i can bring burgers i can bring corn i can bring whatever um let's start with that once health restrictions allow us to do that and it's actually safe to interact but there's nothing to say that we can't have uh outdoor outdoor engagement the 17 year old across the street is a phenomenal musician and every Friday for 20 minutes hosted a uh, concert while the weather was nice. And the entire neighborhood got together and we stayed, you know, six feet apart uh, and, and everybody got to see each other. And that's how our block got through COVID so far. It's been a phenomenal strengthening of community. And then you also know that your neighbors are okay when they're uh, single seniors living somewhere or single parents. So let's, how do we build those connections? It's interesting that, you know, to think as a sort of a thought experiment that the more complex we've gotten as a society, the less social cohesion we have. Because I, in, in some, when you go and you work in sort of these other post-conflict societies, you, you see that by nature of having a conflict, the communities were forced to be, you know, sort of cohesive. And, and then you have a situation where power goes out. And then neighbors come over or they bring food or they bring candles or they bring these things. And it's, it's just another Tuesday. And then they spend time talking to each other and it's very sort of very family centric, you know, and then the, the kids check on the parents and the, these, these systems are in place because they were forced into that position. Whereas, you know, 
from you know from what you're saying right now, which is the fact that some of that's really been missing in some of our societies, which are maybe not, unfortunately so, not under those same conditions or haven't been exposed to that level of uh, you know hardship that requires social cohesion as a community. Yeah, and and I think you know in, in so many ways the the tools that we have that are supposed to connect us even more are actually dividing. Uh, just based on the way that the algorithms work, and this is not a rant against uh, any sort of form of social media, uh, but but the idea is, you know, we are at the same time more connected and more isolated than ever before, and this is a, this is a pre-COVID statement. Um, and COVID's exacerbated that, right? And you know, when the only connections you have because of whatever restrictions have been in place, and and because whatever we've been doing for the good of public health, we need to connect more. Uh, and in a more real and substantive way. And so how do we go about doing that? That's a great question. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the things that we are seeing, and, and it's the, it's really the irony of sort of the international side of the work, is the fact that you have almost exactly the opposite scenarios, right? So while more complex societies, if, you know, I, I don't know, you're, you're living in New York City, and, you know, that's a tough environment to live in. You may not necessarily have all the social cohesion that you, you possibly need. And, you know, if there's a hardship and, a, and a, an odd hurricane comes in on an odd year and then there's sort of problems in, in a massive city, you know, take that situation where it's a complex environment, but sort of maybe lacking in social cohesion or in any other area, for example, more developed cities. And then you go to other international areas where it's really they've, they've been through a hardship and the social cohesion is in place, but exactly the opposite in terms of building complex systems. Because then you go into the community and say, like, okay, well, we need to, you know, we need to build a national response framework, a national response plan. Let's work on our interagency cooperation. And then you're like, man, we have to revise all of your legislation. You know, and like, then you're like, okay, this it's exactly the opposite, you know, and you're like, oh, man, this is like really hard uh, because it's it's all the supporting structure and like the things looking up that need to be sort of revised. Uh, but you don't have a problem at a community level, which is completely just the oddest sort of place to be in, you know. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm not sure there's any great answers. I think that, but what, what I sort of take away from the things that you're, you're talking about and sort of, uh, the experience of being in your community and in, in, in Canada and things like that is that really we're, we're sort of shifting in our perspective to take this more, you know, advocate approach and, and, you know, connection, connecting with communities to try and build out more, you know, sustainability within the communities and, and reliance in the communities so that, you know, and I've seen a lot of more recent talk lately. This has been coming up quite a bit more messaging, which is like the 72 hours that you would prepare for is necessarily not always meaning that you're going to be rescued in 72 hours. Right. So that's like sort of just the start. That's like when people show up and then start doing work. And so the whole idea of reemphasizing that 72 hours, but then also saying like, look, you still have to, you know, get on with life. You still have to sustain yourself. There's a lot of responsibility on the community and individual families to do a lot of the work. And I think that huge shift is sort of happening because bringing it back to sort of climate security and, and things like that, the the added complexity of events is exacerbating this whole situation and drawing massive resources, which then in turn, as again, as we talk about complexity, the more complex it is, the more we need communities and we more than we need that social cohesion. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, sort of to, to bring it full circle, this is where a model like Germany's THW or Australia's SES actually reinforce that because you, they, they bring together volunteers to support the local community. There's a very, very small state level or national level infrastructure of, of a paid full-time cadre that actually supports these initiatives. And yet they're incredibly resilient. And what you find is in most of these, these communities uh, that, that have these structures in place and, and you know, whether it's the CERT model in the States or, or the other ones I've already mentioned, it, it, you've got communities that actually come together, right? And they know, hey, um, the guy that lives five streets over, his name's Kyle. He's an emergency manager. He knows what to do. Let's go, let's go see, make sure he's okay so that we're all okay, <laughs> right? And, and if we can build those kinds of, of tools... The actual cost infrastructure and the resource draw isn't significant because right? it's, it's a very limited 
group of people that are actually there to coordinate and to be able to respond to provide the, the infrastructure. There's a little bit of time for training that's required. There's a little bit of infrastructure in terms of providing people with hand tools and other skills and, and things like that. And then it's the community supporting the community. The one piece that's missing is we need legislation that protects people's jobs when they go to actually respond. So if you if you know if you and I were both members of one of these teams and we're like, hey boss, something's happened. I gotta go help next doorville um, with this group. I'll be back in a week or two weeks. Boss is like, cool. Calls whoever they call it, the government, and the government's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh and Kyle went off to go help next doorville. Like, you're you're covered. Here you can hire somebody temporarily to backfill them, right? So that you're not out of pocket. And that's a far more effective use of financial resources and and personnel and, and people in the community than saying, you just had a major disaster. We're going to give you a quarter million dollars of bailout money, quarter billion dollars of bailout money. If we could, if we could actually support it that way, we will have more connected communities, far more resilient. They'll be adaptive. We'll have a more resilient economy and the ability to bounce back quicker. Um, and I, I think, you know, in the hope uh, uh, is that we will have a far more civil society. Yeah, I do too. I think that there's a lot to learn from different international models and to look at what people are doing specifically. And 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 uh, TSW in Germany is a very, very German <laughs> model, right? It, so it is it is sort of it 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 makes sense <laughs> in Germany. You know what I mean? Um but I I think that doesn't mean that we can't learn from that experience. And and so uh, there's there's lots of great programs out there that I, I think that we should explore and share because we don't always have the answers. So I think that's a, a really a great idea. So Josh, yeah, thanks a lot for just sort of joining and having a quick discussion sort of about, you know, climate security and sort of impacts and, and engaging communities and what it means for communities and helping to come up with some ideas about how we can sort of uh, re-engage and build social cohesion. I think that's going to be extremely important moving forward in the future with all these different complexities that we're dealing with. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? What's the best way? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn uh, and on Twitter, uh, and and uh, I'm sure you can share that with with the community. But uh, at Josh S Bowen on Twitter, uh, and then LinkedIn, just Josh Bowen, you'll find me there. Okay, great. All right, thank you so much. Thanks for your time, and it was uh, great having you on the the podcast. And we'll be in touch. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kyle. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Capacity Building International and the International Emergency Management Society. You can join teams today at tiems.info. That's tiems.info. And also sign up for the International Emergency Management Newsletter by CBI at capacitybuildingint.com. Is there a topic you would like to hear about? Or are you a functional expert and want to be featured on our show? If so, reach out to us at info at capacitybuildingint.com and let us know. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.